Hello everybody, hope you're well. Ian here. It's Friday evening and uh, I'm taking advantage of the fact that Mrs D and the Mini Ds are out for the evening so I thought right I'll make the most of it and do a little bit of recording. Lucky you eh? So this week um, I'm going to do a bit of a kind of a general rambly thought dump um, on you which oh god sometimes I think you poor bastards I was um, invited onto a podcast called H Hour as in the letter H hyphen hour or the same other around R H-O-U-R uh, hosted by Hugh Keir who is a ex-parachute regiment sniper who uh, fought in uh, I believe Af Afghanistan and Iraq and he's got a very interesting podcast where he interviews predominantly military people. Um, but I was referred into it from a mutual friend, uh, Ed Hargreaves. Ed Hargreaves is an ex-PTI with the Parachute Regiment. And I do warrior fitness with uh, Ed. Uh, Ed's got his own company since leaving the army. He was a, he was a W1 in the... Uh, physical training department of the army and had been in the, the Paris for a long time um, and Ed's got his own business so shout out, massive shout out to Ed Hargreaves Warrior Fitness um, where basically you carry a heavy weight on your back and uh, uh, get pretty knackered and do all sorts of things which is brilliant, Out all outdoors and uh, yeah, really enjoy that so, so Ed had referred me into Hugh and um, so if you check out, if you want to have a look at that podcast on uh, HR, um, slightly weirdly, it was done on video as well as sound. So uh, when the YouTube video appeared, I got a sort of a notification um, and oh my God, it's so cringy watching yourself. It's bad enough listening to yourself sometimes but watching yourself on YouTube is just super cringe um, and yeah you, you're very sort of self-critical I think well I am anyway um, when I watch myself back and yeah um, I look really serious like super serious and I think really what that was actually was I th I really think very carefully before I say anything. I want to make sure I get it right. And I find it very hard sometimes to do that when I'm looking at someone right in the eye. So I tend to kind of look away. Um, so it kind of makes me look <laughs> like a bit like a, I don't know, somebody who just isn't capable of having a normal conversation with someone. Um, yeah, and th I really liked uh, Hugh's podcast and I've I've actually become a patron of his podcast since being on that because I think what he's doing is really brilliant he's on like episode 150 order or something like that he's been doing it for quite a few years now and he interview, interviews some really really interesting people um, and the thing I really like about his podcast this is terrible isn't it um, plugging someone else's podcast on your podcast because 
you know, what I don't want you to do is kind of run away and start listening to Hugh's podcast and stop listening to my podcast, I suppose. But um, it, what I really liked about it was the fact that it's completely unscripted. I, I mean, mine's unscripted as well, but his takes being unscripted to a whole another level in that when I interview people on my podcast, I tend to have a bit of a framework that I'm going to stick to. So it tends to be, um, you know, tell me about your life before you joined the police. Um, tell me about your career, uh, kind of highs and lows. And then, you know, we'll have a bit of a, you know, chat about, you know, where you think the police is at the moment, blah, blah, blah. And I actually think I'm going to move away from that format a little bit um, because I think it's quite restrictive. And what I'm actually more interested in is talking to people and getting under the skin and trying to figure out what makes them tick. And, you know, um, I just think honesty and integrity are very important to me. Um, I think I started off that whole blurb talking about um, making reference to my sweariness and uh, and Hugh uh, kind of took the piss a little bit uh, and said um, made reference to the fact that I was a hospice chaplain and you know I'm a really sweary I'm quite a sweary person um, always have been um, I don't actually think it makes you a bad person um, as long as you do it in an appropriate way and kind of know your audience and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it all comes back to the fact that I think it's very important to be yourself in life. And and I do look back at some of the times when I was in the police when I definitely probably wasn't being myself. I was being a version of myself that I don't think was really very honest. Um, and for the last five years, I've, I've mentioned this before, haven't I, in the podcast, but in the last five years, I've I've been a, a hospice, voluntary hospice chaplain at uh, at Mighton Hospice in, in Warwick. And um, yeah, it's been probably one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. It's been really brilliant. Um, lots of highs and lows, lots of amazing um, people that I've met. Uh, some of them are, are um, patients, some of them are staff, some of them are family members, but you get to meet some really interesting people and and I suppose if somebody said to me what really what really makes you tick or what what's the thing that you like most in in life I'd say people I'm really interested in people I love talking to people I love figuring out what what they're all about and um yeah um what I can't stand is um people who are not genuine who are just full of bullshit um, you see so much of that uh, in life and politics and you know at work and I just can't I just can't stand it um, and I, I made a very sort of kind of a bit of a solemn vow to myself when I left the police that for, for the rest of my life I would try and be really honest and try and be really true to myself and um, just say it as it is and if people don't like that well that's that's fine everybody's entitled to their opinion but Actually, I think it's much more important to to be to be yourself. So, 
I suppose my sweariness. Um, I'm, I'm quite sweary actually as a hospice chaplain um, uh, when it's appropriate. Because if you're speaking to someone who is dying um, and, and they've probably only got, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks to live, um, then uh, honesty and straightforwardness is is definitely something that is appreciated I think um, yeah um, so uh, one question while we're on that subject one one question people often ask me about the chaplaincy thing is um, are you a religious chaplain or are you not um, and I suppose what I'd say to that question is um, I am I am a Christian um, but I'm a Christian probably with a very small C. So what I mean by that is um, I don't bang on about it all the time. Um, I, I've got a, a sort of a strong Christian faith, but I don't, I kind of don't go to church at the moment, which is probably a bit weird. Um, and I tend to see the stuff I do at the hospice as kind of my expression of my faith. Um, so I think I do think in life actions are stronger than words, really. Um, but it is really, it is a really, really unbelievably fulfilling thing to do and um, to spend time with people who are at uh, or approaching the end of their life and to be able to talk to them and help them uh, if you can and to help them try and make sense of what's going on. Uh, and from a Christian point of view, um, if people want to talk God, I'll talk God with them and I'll share with them some of my kind of experiences of God. Um, but if they don't want to talk God, then that's absolutely fine. And uh, I make that crystal clear. And it's interesting, I, I tend to get a slightly different reaction when I walk into a patient's room um, compared to some of my colleagues who've, who, who are sort of ordained uh, ministry. So they'll walk in with a dog collar on and actually it can have quite they can actually end up getting quite a hostile uh, reception sometimes it's just like the last thing some people want to see is a dog collar um because um, i heard someone say once oh don't go in there with a dog collar on uh, to, to to a priest because they'll because they'll think they're dying and it's just like well they're in a hospice so they kind of they are dying so so yeah, but I do find um, if I, uh, I I do tend to get a slightly different response, and it's interesting because sometimes you can speak to a patient who um, is uh, curious about spirituality, the spiritual uh, dimension, I suppose, and. Um, uh, you know, so I've gone from a situation where you're having a conversation with someone at the start where they're absolutely not remotely interested in talking about God. And then by the end of the conversation, they are super curious about it all. So, yeah, anyway, enough about that. Um, so, um, I'm actually... I'm actually doing more of what Hugh does at the moment here, which is uh, really massively unscripted. So if, if you're uncomfortable with that, I apologise. But I do think it's probably more true um, to myself. So 
Um, so what I'm going to talk about very briefly, um, I have, I've had a bit of a wobble about the podcast in the last um, week or so. Um, when I started doing the podcast, I, I was determined that it was going to be a vehicle to sort of drive and drive the book and, um, you know, uh, drive, drive, I suppose, for want of a better word, drive book sales, really. Um, but I do tend to think now that the podcast and the book are two completely separate things. Um, the book is the book. I've written the book. It's out there. If people want to read it, then great. If if they don't, then that's fine as well. Um, I, I'm still getting a trickle of um, media sort of requests or interviews and stuff like that, and I'll I'll, I'll do those as they come along. Um, but I do think the podcast. I've got I've got a probably uh, an aspiration to take the podcast in a slightly different direction. Um, I feel like I've exhausted the whole the job's fucked thing. Um, the job is fucked, but I don't particularly want to keep banging on about it because I think it's it's potentially going to get a bit boring. Um, I think I've made my point in the book. I stand by everything I've said in the book. Um, and, and I'm not going to change my mind on any of that stuff. Uh, and everything I see and hear that's coming through the media and coming through various police channels, whether it's social media or whatever, police journals, reinforces my belief that the, the police is is well and truly fucked and, and probably getting getting worse, if not better, unfortunately. We had that story today where they've gone in and had a look at... Um, Greater Manchester, who were on the naughty step, weren't they requiring improvement? And the inspectorate have gone in and they've basically said, uh, yeah, it's still not good, it's still not not improving. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've never been in Greater Manchester, I don't really understand the issues in Greater Manchester, um, but um, it does, I've, I've read some of the things that people who work in Greater Manchester have been saying and um, yeah, that a lot of a lot of people saying it took a long time to get into the mess that it's in, and it's going to take a long time to get out of that mess, I suppose. But I don't know. Difficult to know whether that's uh, an issue that is replicated across so many forces in the UK. But so yeah, so I don't particularly want to keep banging on about the fact that the job's fucked. Um, I, I think it's probably going to be more interesting. For people to hear me talk to individuals who have got something to say about policing, who've got a story to tell, um, and just keep it really loose, I suppose. So if they want to talk about policing, we'll talk about policing. If they want to talk about their mother who's got Alzheimer's, then we'll talk about that. If they want to talk about, you know, the struggles that they've had maybe with their mental health or in their sort of relationships or whatever, then we'll talk about that as well. So I kind of maybe maybe bring less less jobs fucked, more chaplaincy, if that doesn't sound too ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm probably looking to take it slightly. Because um, I've got to say, about a week ago, I just wanted to jack the whole bloody thing in, actually, because it does require quite a lot of work to kind of do this um, and uh, when you're not getting paid to do it I'm not, not expecting to get paid but um, 
yeah, it's sometimes you just think, oh God, what am I doing here? You know, does anybody actually give a shit about any of this stuff, or, or am I just putting this stuff out here? And you know, but um, I think I'll probably try and, like I say, turn it into something that actually really um, I think I would like to do more. Um, a bit along the lines of what Hugh's doing with HR. So, um, what what would be really help? What would really help me actually? Because um, it's really weird sitting talking to a microphone in a room on your own. Um, what would really help me would be to give me some feedback. So, if you're sitting there listening to this and you, you know, you're a fan of the podcast, you've been listening to it for maybe you know, all the way through, or maybe you've just discovered it and you're thinking, oh God, this is good. And I had a lovely, had a lovely sort of review on the podcast, uh, on Apple podcast, I think it was the other day from someone who'd obviously just discovered it fairly recently and they were kind of binge listening to it and obviously really enjoying it. So, so yeah, if you've just discovered it, tell me, tell me what you would like. Uh, it would really help me actually. Um, so you can send me an email at Ian at tjfbook.com so tango juliet foxtrot book all one word dot com or you can email me at my work email address which is ian at ik india kilo hyphen insights i-n-s-i-g-h-t-s dot com and just tell me what you enjoy what you'd like more of what you'd like less of feedback's a gift so it just saves me from um, blowering on about stuff that you don't want to listen to. So, um, okay. So, just in terms of uh, what I've been doing recently, so I'm I'm a bit out of sync with the podcast, if I'm honest, and that's just because I've been really busy with all sorts of stuff, most of which has been family-related stuff. So. Um, uh, a member of my wife's family um, died just before Christmas and I agreed to be the executor of the will having no understanding of what that actually meant and having never done it before oh my god um, didn't know I was going to have to do a lot of this stuff so um, without kind of discussing who that person was who died or anything uh, that's it's not really relevant, really. But um, he lived in a completely different part of the country, way up in the northeast of England. So I've been having to shuttle backwards and forwards to the northeast of England for the last about you know on and off for the last couple of months. Um, he was a obsessive hoarder, um, and if hoarding was an Olympic sport, he would have multiple gold medals. Um, the house was filled from floor to ceiling in all sorts of stuff to the point where you couldn't get into um, most of the rooms in the house. They were just filled right to the door with stuff. And I've got to say, in 30 years policing, I'd never seen anything quite like it. I've been into hoarders' houses before, but I'd never seen anything quite as bad as this. So... Um, long story short, 
we've had to get house clearance people in who are actually auctioneers as well because there's some stuff in there that's of value. So it's not a case of just having to bin everything, it's a case of having to go through everything and checking what it is before you kind of skip it. Um, yeah, so it's been a real bloody nightmare, quite honestly. And um, yeah, uh, it's, um, it's, I've been up there for the last four days working with the guys who are clearing the house and we've probably only got halfway through it after four days and that's a team of five or six people it gives you an idea so yeah so i'm a bit out of sync with the podcast because i've had to do all of that shit and um yes yeah, so what's been going on in policing um so the strategic review of policing is a project which has been conducted by the police foundation for about the last two years now the police foundation is a sort of an independent think tank i suppose i'm not quite sure where they're funded from but uh they've got all sorts of clever people working for them and they've done a review of policing in england and wales for the last two years and the chair of the Strategic Review of Policing is Sir Michael Barber. And he came out during the week with his initial, I suppose, wetting people's appetite for the publication of the full review, which I believe is in about a week's time. So as I sit here, this is the 4th of March, 2022. I believe the full report is going to be published next week. So he, he came out and painted broad brush key themes last week. And none of it came as any surprise to me. And it probably didn't come as a surprise to anyone who has been around policing for a long time. So there was quite a few headlines in various newspapers. I think The Guardian ran, ran a headline on the front page last week saying that policing in 2022 is not fit, this is according to the review, is not even fit for today, never mind for the future. And that police technology is in a real mess. It's like, no shit Sherlock. Um, so anyone who's been policing, you know, and has worked in policing will know that that's, we've got 43 different ways of doing things, 43 forces with, lots and lots of different systems within each individual force never mind you know trying to get things to talk to each other um we've got these massive it projects that have been a complete disaster so the uh, emergency services esn i think it's an emergency service network many million many 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 millions of pounds overspent and uh no sign of that coming you know to fruition anytime soon the the other project that was going to replace what is currently PNC and PND, so Police National Computer and the Police National Database, um, I think my understanding that that has been completely shelved now after many, many tens of millions of pounds, so that's a complete waste of money. Nothing is going to change. They're going to have to try and find another way of doing that extending the life of what is currently Police National Database. 
as well as the fact that most cops um, on the front line have got absolutely no means whatsoever of investigating 21st century crime types. So even if you have something very trivial like someone making threats against someone else online, then they've got no means, no technical means of actually capturing the evidence and doing anything with it in, in, the, in the vast majority of cases. Um, some of the other headlines from that are that 40% um, of all crime is now online fraud uh, and the vast majority of that goes undetected. Um, violent crime, which is often drug-related, um, has risen with homicide involving sharp weapons doubling between 2015 and 2021. Crime detection has fallen dramatically. And as you know, if you listen to this podcast, it's now sitting nationally, England and Wales, at 6% of total recorded crime, which is a complete fucking disaster as far as I can see. Um, and the amount of time that police officers deal with mental health issues has increased by 33% between 2017 and 2020, which equates to 3 million investigation hours per year devoted to missing persons. So, so when the media kind of bang on about how shit the police is, then, you know, um, I suspect when that report is published next week, that will give the media a whole lot of new ammunition to paint a very sorry picture of policing. Uh, in truth, that's probably not going to happen, mainly because of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. So, so on that one, what the actual fuck is going on in the world at the moment? I mean, seriously, we've only just got rid of the bloody... COVID pandemic and we've now stepped into what feels like um, the potential for World War 3 and um, I'm not a brilliant sleeper sometimes and I woke up this morning at half past four in the morning and tossed and turned for a while um, tried to get back to sleep, couldn't so as you do which you know is the wrong thing to do you get your mobile phone don't you and you start scrolling which is a really stupid thing to do at half past four in the morning. And what's the first thing I see is that those idiots have been shelling a nuclear power station in the Ukraine. You know, you just think, oh my God, can it, can it actually get any worse? Um, and I've had quite a lot of interesting conversations with ex-colleagues of mine who I was in special branch with back in back in the day um, and it's really interesting I think there's a lot of parallels you can draw between the way that the British security community have taken their eye off the ball with Russia and it's very similar to the way that pre 9-11 there was almost no interest whatsoever in looking at Islamic fundamentalist extremism. 
uh, at that time, so this is going back to sort of the mid-90s, I suppose, London was the gathering place for most of the most extreme Islamic fundamentalists who were flocking to London. Uh, the, French, the French government referred to London as Londonistan. And at that time, I was on the Islamic extremism desk in Special Branch. And we were saying to people at that time, this is really serious. You're getting some real battle-hardened people coming back from the wars in Chechnya and Bosnia. These are people who, um, you know, hate everything the West has to stand for, uh, stands for. They're making some very um, worrying uh, proclamations about, uh, you know, what they would like to do. But at that, at that time everyone was very focused still on Irish Republican terrorism, which, you know, don't get me wrong, it was a, it was a, real, it was a real threat, it was a real national security threat, and, and I did a lot of stuff in that area as well. But all of the things that many people were saying about Islamist extremists were ignored. And I do think that because everybody's been so focused on Islamic extremism now, you know, since 9-11, they've taken their eye off the ball on arguably a much greater threat to not just the West, but to, you know, narrowly to the British public. You know, we've seen Putin's assassins deploying weapons-grade nerve agents in Salisbury and elsewhere. They've, they've made no secret whatsoever of, uh, well, Putin anyway, has made no secret whatsoever of uh, his disdain for democratic values. And to have a situation where you know, within the last seven days, you've got a modern-day dictator threatening not just the West but the world with a nuclear apocalypse has just taken us to a place that none of us thought we would be, you know, two or three weeks ago. So I suppose, what does that mean? What does that mean, I suppose, given that this is a policey, podcast what does that mean for policing so for me all day long there needs to be a an absolute appreciation that there will be russian agents within great britain at the moment who are prepared and ready to do bad things and are probably awaiting the orders to do that I've got no intelligence or information of that whatsoever, but it's an, it's absolutely clear as day that that will be the case. And I think we've become far too focused on the narrow issue of Islamist extremism. And when I look back on the, you know the days when I was in Special Branch, Special Branch was a 
we we were the executive so the the formal sort of role was we were the executive arm of the security services so what that meant was that mi5 and mi6 and gchq don't have any ability to uh, lay hands on people to arrest and detain people to investigate an individual they rely they relied back in those days they relied on special branches to do that and they still rely on the counterterrorism network to do that but i think the skills required to identify and compromise the activities of a hostile foreign power in the U operating in the uk are very different to the skills required to tackle some of the people who you know putting it bluntly are not the sharpest knives in the box a lot of the people who have been conducting terrorist attacks or planning attack planning in the uk they're not the sharpest knives in the box a lot of them are actually mentally ill um their their tradecraft is crap um and yeah if they if they had brains they would be truly dangerous whereas the sort of people i'm talking about who are highly trained well equipped um and working for a hostile foreign power or a different kettle of fish altogether so i would really like to think that the uk security services and the counterterrorism network were shifting their focus away from some of those issues that they have been looking at and very very quickly getting themselves up to speed with what does a russian agent look like in the uk what what is our previous experience of dealing with russian agents in the uk look like and while we're at it let's do the chinese as well because arguably they pose as great if not a greater threat than russia maybe not in the immediate term but certainly in the medium to longer term so there you go right so um i'm going to be doing some more interviews soon uh i've made the mistake in the past of saying who i'm going to be interviewing um and then that person can't do it or there's a clash of diaries or whatever um but yeah i've got some i've got some interesting people lined up to interview and uh look forward to doing that and uh yeah so assuming that we all haven't been uh, immolated in a massive radioactive um thermonuclear explosion i'll see you soon <laughs>